Welcome to This Wild Life, a conservation podcast that brings you up to date with frontline conservation efforts from around the world. Expect stories of wild adventures and get to know the characters who are dedicating their lives to protect our beautiful planet. We're here to bring the wild to you. Hello everyone, I'm your host Amy Turner and a really warm welcome to episode 13. Now you may hear that our audio is slightly different today due to a connectivity blip but that's maybe because we're heading over to the coastal waters of Mozambique. We will be talking to an amazing woman, Francesca Trotman, who has created something really special an organisation called Love the Oceans. Francesca is a marine biologist and has built Love the Oceans, a not-for-profit organisation that aims to create a marine protected area in Mozambique. They do this through continual research of marine life from humpback whales to sharks to coral reefs and Importantly, they do all of this with a bottom-up, community-led approach, from setting up schools to creating swimming programmes that are just incredible. So in this episode, we'll be talking to Francesca about a whole host of topics, from the megafauna research involving manta rays to whale sharks and humpback whales. And also we'll be talking to Francesca about the reason why she set Love the Oceans up in the first place and talking about shark finning. So with all of that said, Francesca, a really warm welcome onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here. And to start off with, could you perhaps give us an overview of the work of Love the Oceans um, what's your mission and, and goal? Um, so we're, yeah, as you said, marine conservation non-profit. So um, we're based in Mozambique uh, and our mission is to establish a marine protected area. So we are going to do that through um, a multi-pronged approach. So we do a lot of different areas of research and community outreach, um, as well as alternative livelihoods work. So um, we do fisheries research, humpback whales, coral reefs, ocean trash, uh, megafauna um, and then with each of the areas of research we're publishing papers to uh, lobby for legislation change and protect um, well change different laws so protect certain species but also like limit types of fishing that can go on and um, catch limits and mesh size limits and all the rest of it and then our megafauna data is also to prove that we have heaps of humpback whales during whale season and we also have residential whale sharks and manta rays so basically proving that there are um, what we call like sexy species the the (laughs) ecotourism species that like people travel all over the world and spend loads of money to see we have them here so that's a very um, sustainable and financially feasible um, source of income uh, for the community through tourism so that's kind of the data section of what we do and then the um, entire kind of vision of Love the Oceans is sustainability so mm-hmm. we envisage um, not having to do the work that we're currently doing uh, in mm. the future because the local community will manage its own assets 
um, and manage the marine protected area themselves. So um, we teach basic marine resource management uh, and we also teach swimming lessons because a large portion of the population can't swim here. And obviously with ecotourism, um, there'll be a job uh, increase in the ecotourism space and Mm. marine ecotourism usually involves, you know, snorkeling, swimming, that kind of thing. So swimming is an essential skill. So a lot of our work is about like removing barriers that can stand in people's way from living more sustainably. So uh, things like we're trying to transition people over from unsustainable shark fishing, which happens in the area, uh, to more sustainable methods of fishing, like spearfishing. But obviously to spearfish, you, you have to be able to swim. So then the snakes into it there as well. And then we also have our alternative livelihoods, which is basically um, about... Uh, providing an alternate source of income to unsustainable fishing um, Mm. and basically increasing food security um, and alleviating poverty um, which is Mm. really important in our area because we're in a very rural area of Mozambique which is very poverty stricken so um, yeah being able to alleviate poverty and give people an alternate source of income so that's things like hydroponics and Mm. uh, sustainable honey harvesting and agriculture um so yeah providing that outcome well it's such a big organization that you run and it's incredible incredible to hear all about the different strands of work that you have developed from the megafauna surveys to all of your community programs so i'm interested how did you start love the oceans and what led you to mozambique in the first place so it was a bit of luck well or or chance um <laughs> so i kind of always loved marine life and and i was a lucky person in that i've always known what i wanted to do in terms of um marine stuff mm. so i went to the london aquarium for my eighth birthday and then learned to dive when i was 13 and that was it i was going to be a marine, a marine bar so, <laughs> um, um, so I was lucky in that sense. So I went to university, did marine biology. Um, and then at the end of my second year, I went on a photography internship in um, Mozambique and um, saw my first shark killing there. So um, that was actually in the bay that I'm currently sat in, talking to you from, like very local to our area. Um, and I saw my first shark killing um, and I was really upset by it because obviously I'd, I'd like grown up on Jack Cousteau and David Attenborough mm. and Sylvia Earle and yeah. seeing something and reading about it was obviously very different to seeing it in real life. So, uh, yeah, I basically wanted to work out. First of all, I just wanted to stop the sharks being killed. But then I realised why they were being killed, which was for the shark fin trade to work out how bad the fin trade was in the area, what could be um done to stop it all of that kind of stuff and and how what kind of effect it might be having on the local marine ecosystem um so i came back the following year because i did an integrated masters which is basically like the cheapest and quickest way of doing a masters don't you don't have to like reapply after your third year so i was at university of southampton doing marine biology and i just went for my bachelor's straight into my masters so in the summer of my third year i then came back out and spent four months with the shark fishermen here learning about the shark fin trade um with my research assistants in the bologna university um and then when i was writing up my thesis i was getting the exact results you would think in terms of the fin trade i.e mm. unsustainable um 
and probably detrimental effect to the local marine ecosystem but yeah I didn't have enough data so I couldn't get my stats significant and I couldn't publish a paper so I couldn't do anything about the situation I couldn't get any laws okay. changed or anything like that and it was something that I felt that I couldn't walk away from so I founded love the oceans to make research because i basically couldn't afford to come out here on my own and physically Mm. couldn't do it on my own either so i looked into ways to build a team and make it financially feasible and volunteering kind of came on the radar so Mm. i founded love the oceans initially just to stop the shark fin trade but as the years go on you kind of learn more and more and it's been a very much learn on the job situation So a lot of the time people are like, oh, wow, you guys are really holistic. How did you come up with it? But it's like I didn't sit there and go, oh, this is what we're going to do, X, Mm. Y, Z. It's all kind of been born slowly but surely. And Andrea, our executive director, she came on board after a year and she's been integral to developing some of these projects. And yeah, it's it's a slow process. Conservation Mm. science is kind of renowned for being slow. (laughs) kind of developed the projects as we go and now yeah we're, we're very holistic in what we do. I'm very sure by now that everyone realises that this is a very successful project but for anyone at home um, who doesn't know it might be good to mention that Love the Oceans has been recognised internationally as a global grassroots force for change by the Duke and Duchess of Sussex so that kind of gives you a good idea about how successful this project has been. Now, moving back onto the topic of shark finning, what is the situation in your area um, in, in terms of what are the species being caught and maybe if you could give us an idea of the numbers that are caught? Um, so it's small scale in terms of like it's um semi-industrial so it's not like big big vessels going out we have no ports near us we think Mm. that probably is going on but we don't have the resources to be monitoring that at the moment Mm. and yeah i'm not going to send people out on a boat and ask them to board other boats without any kind of safety backup yeah we monitor uh the small scale fishing so that's basically like everything that comes up we originally focused just on the shark fin trade um but we actually monitor everything because there's loads Mm. of other different types of fishing that happens here and um it's important to recognize that sometimes you can assume things or like you think something might be because of something else you come up with a hypothesis um but actually it could be completely unrelated um so it's Mm. important to kind of recognize that there may be other influences happening as well so we um collect data on all of the fisheries now um Mm. but with the shark fin trade we don't we only know our stretch of coastline um but our stretch of coastline one of the reasons i picked here um besides the fact that it was chance that i came here um Mm. it's actually representative of a lot of like typical mozambique um so what we see going on here is likely to be going on up and down the coastline basically the issue that um less economically developed countries have is that um they have a lot of natural resources generally um but they don't have the human resources to Mm. be be posting guards um at like regular intervals along the coastline or along whatever natural resource you're talking Mm. about but for us it's the coastline um Mm. to make sure that people aren't illegally exploiting those natural resources Mm. um so basically you've got 
over 2,700 kilometres of coastline in Mozambique and very, very little patrols or any kind of guarding of that resource. So it can be exploited as much as anyone really wants. And that's part of the reason that we have taken the approach we have. Like, yes, you need to get the laws changed and that's the science part of it. But mm. um, it's one thing changing that law and it's another thing that law then being implemented because if there's no kind of guard or patrol or anything like that then people and there's no education around why that law has been changed then people will continue to fish illegally and they may not even know that it's illegal because there isn't a whole lot of communication or ways of communication in the area because most people don't have a mobile phone um so for us yeah we're looking at you're looking at like five to six sharks caught a day in one of the local long lines um during it's seasonal as well so um july to november is like typical shark fishing season here yeah and generally it's um, a range of different shark species um, and we basically operate in Jangamo which is three different bays and mm. we know of two active long lines in the area right okay. um, so if that's kind of happening it may be small scale in terms of like five sharks isn't that many but if it's obviously continuous and it's also yeah. up and down the whole coastline then you've actually got um, a larger problem um, in terms of scale um, yeah. And obviously that also compiles with the um, industrial fishing that we know is happening. Um, mm. So it's kind of like a dual issue um, that we're yeah. facing here. So scalloped hammerheads are one of the most common species caught as well as bull sharks. Um, right. And in terms of like what you actually see in the water as well, I've seen so many sharks killed and I've seen a handful of sharks alive in the water here so i mean you see like reef sharks but i mean in terms of like bull sharks i've never seen a bull shark alive in mozambique waters swimming wow, around okay um and i've only seen a couple of scalloped hammerheads um wow. okay so yeah numbers uh it's kind of disproportionate that they're, they're obviously baited on the long line so you see a lot yeah. more kind of um sharks yeah being brought on the long line unfortunately than actually on the dives Okay, and in terms of working with the local people and the local fishermen, is there any backlash against what you're doing in terms of trying to reduce the numbers of, of sharks caught? Or is there a sense of community buy-in? Yeah, so our community work, so our project's actually part owned by two of the elders. So we work in two different main, so we work across Jangamo, which is three different communities, but two of them we work in predominantly because the third one is just a little bit further away so it's more difficult to like logistically work with um mm. so Ginjata and Pandani are the two main communities and Silva and Mario are the two elders and the elders are basically like the mayors in the community essentially um, okay so they part own the project that we run and um our approach is very much community-based so any kind of ideas be it science or community work that are thought of um by either party then that is kind of developed together um mm -hmm. because the thing that you've always got to remember is like i'm i'm foreign and and a lot of my team are international mm. um we're not born in mozambique um mm. some like some of our team are which is great and obviously we utilize that um mm. but in terms of development of projects with the community it's really important to utilize their knowledge because Silva and Mario have infinitely more knowledge about the local community and the people that live here than I ever will mm. um, yeah. 
and it's a really important um, resource to pull on and also recognize how important that knowledge is to a project development mm. in a region like this. Mm. Um, so okay. um, yeah, they've actually been really great. We were very lucky at the start um, when I first had a community meeting and kind of said like, this is kind of what I'm thinking. What do you guys think? I think it was, I think it was Marius had actually been to Kenya and seen a similar ecotourism initiative. So okay. he was like immediately on board. It was so easy. <laughs> there was no like convincing or anything like that. To be honest, there never really has been. Um, we have a very good open relationship so we can just talk about anything and um, everyone's very like on the same page and just really nice. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, we've never had any like resistance or anything like that. And the local community has been yeah, very on board with, with any kind of initiatives that have been thought of or developed or whatever um yeah. So yeah now of course that's the shark finning side of things but you didn't stop there as part of your holistic approach you're now involved in coral reef health assessments ocean trash initiatives um you obviously collect data on these flagship megafauna species um so what data are you collecting on these species such as the humpback whales and, and whale sharks so um, three, there's three megafauna species we focus on mainly. We do work with dolphins as well, but less so because they're quite skittish in the area. But we mainly work with humpback whales, whale sharks and manta rays. Um, okay. Humpback whales predominantly, um, then whale sharks is like our secondary database. Manta rays are a lot less in numbers here, especially in the recent years. And we're developing some hypotheses on why that might be. Uh, okay. We think it might be down to irresponsible tourism, but we're actually not sure. So we're still looking at right. that because they aren't being caught at a rate that would impact their numbers as much as they've dipped uh, in okay. this area. Um, mm, interesting. So it's not fisheries. Um, mm. That said, obviously, we don't have any data on the uh, industrial, so it could be Gilrica trade industrially. The megafauna research... Um, humpback whales come here between june and november and uh, it's a migratory route so they're coming from cooler waters and they travel up this coastline um so you basically get mating pods and then you get mother and calf pairs um yeah. and the mother mothers and calves are um stick very close to the coastline because of the mm -hmm. protection from orcas and uh they follow the temperature drop in the ocean so uh, as soon as the temperature drops in south africa then we know that they're coming up this way very soon and um yeah, so basically uh, with each of the areas, uh, with each of the species that we work with, with megafauna, we're looking at um, population. So like literally a population count of individuals. So um, you can use an identifying feature. So with humpback whales, it's the tail fluke um, that's unique to each humpback whale. With whale sharks, it's the left hand, well, we use the left hand side, but... Um, the spot formation of the gill slits and the pectoral fin for whale yeah. sharks that's unique to each whale shark and then with yeah. manta rays it's the spot formation on the belly of the manta ray okay um so um we do a, a, like just a count which is important but then with humpback whales we also do a frequency um count so uh well and in fact with all of those species we do frequency counts so population yeah. and frequency of sightings are two different data sets um, and they're 
equally important. It's obviously from a conservation perspective, important to know how many individuals you've got in the area. But from a tourism perspective, your average tourist doesn't care if they see the same whale 10 times in one day or 10 different whales. But obviously that's quite different data that you're looking at. And then with the uh, humpback whale data, we are also doing an acoustic study. Um, so okay. basically have a hydrophone, which is an underwater microphone. And we deploy that over the side of the boat. Last year, we had um, some stationary pods, which we deployed for like 24 hours, um, yeah. which are pretty cool. Um, but basically, you record what you hear underwater. And um, we're looking at uh, the link between surface behavior and what we're hearing underwater. Um, but we're also looking at just song composition generally, because um, humpback whales exhibit one of the most primal forms of cultural transmission which is basically when each pod has their own song when they pass each other they swap parts of their song so you look at um, migration routes um, based on songs how interesting yeah it's really interesting so we work with a bunch of different NGOs I think in like five different countries at the moment Um, and we're all based around like southern Africa Um, yeah and yeah you can look at migration routes there which is obviously very interesting um and you can actually use that data as well to look at how many pods are transitioning through our bay so at the moment our data looks like we've got pods that stick around for a week and then move on um but obviously that's that was so that data that we found that in was like two years ago so we're still collecting data and working out if we've got pods that kind of come up this far and then stick around longer or where they all do move on very quickly. Is this data then used to add pressure to the government and give evidence essentially that a marine protected area um, needs to be established? Yeah so all of all of our research is going towards that and with the dolphin stuff so dolphins are easier in terms of this kind of study than humpback whales in the dolphins exhibit um well dolphins make different noises based on their behavior um, okay. so obviously dolphins have a range of vocalizations like whistles and clicks and stuff like that and they make different noises based on what they're doing so they'll make a different noise mating versus um hunting mm. and being able to record that and then confidently write a paper and confidently say this area is being used by dolphins for x y and z is obviously yeah. another very strong way to reason for a marine protected area to be created so yeah all of these all of this research basically is taken to government and then the mpa Brilliant. will be well this is this is a plan anyways yeah. <laughs> um, the mpa will be uh nationally recognized but at the moment we're working on a locally managed marine area and lmma which doesn't necessarily have to be nationally recognized but we want it to be so that's the kind of government side of things Mm. now for our listeners at home you've probably heard of the huge threats that face our coral reefs from coral bleaching caused by global warming or ocean acidification certain fishing practices such as dynamite fishing and not to mention scuba divers we you know scuba divers can also damage reefs so what is the health of the coral light where you are um it's patchy um (laughs) there's some areas where it's great and there's some areas where it's really really damaged so we've got some protected areas with barrow reefs that um it's gorgeous and and very yeah picturesque yeah, uh, and then you've got areas where there's been destructive fishing um, or overfishing, 
and the corals have kind of really taken a bashing and um, died or or we don't have that much bleaching so it's not necessarily a larger (laughs) yeah exactly it's it's not necessarily like a larger problem like um warming or or acidification but it it, we're definitely looking at some local issues uh, like destructive Mm. fishing methods um because gill nets are used a lot here and gill nets are terrible for the reefs because they're basically um massive nets that well it's terrible for the oceans Mm. (laughs) but basically they're massive nets that are super unselective they're chucked in the water usually with weights on the underside uh, and if that's on a reef then obviously the net gets caught on the reef and the fishermen just yank the mm. net out and pull the reef yeah. with it so it's a um, really yeah. destructive method of fishing to mention okay. very unselective and damaging in terms of like anything that swims into it dies so turtles sharks dolphins whatever and moving back onto love the oceans as an organization you've set this up from scratch which is phenomenal and the in- impact you've had is completely clear to see but is there a moment that really stands out to you in regards to your success oh um yeah or a, a couple in, yeah a few in, in like different ways so it's really satisfying with like the trash stuff um looking at numbers of like pieces of plastic that we've picked up over the years i think it's on like eighty six thousand or something oh god yeah depressing but also like um in terms of it's uh nice to be able to be like we've made that very tangible difference same with like the community work finishing classrooms because we basically were requested by elders to help construct classrooms using a local building team so we fundraise abroad and then employ local builders to construct classrooms and schools okay. and that's because every once in our area at least once a school gets up to 10 classrooms the government will establish it as a secondary school we don't have any secondary schools it's been really hard for that last year and we achieved it um so both schools that we work at now have 10 classrooms so one become the primary school for the entire area and one can become the secondary school which is obviously a really really big thing in terms of education so that was a big one for us and then obviously the in terms of like recognition the duke and duchess choosing us as one of their 15 global forces for change um was a really really big thing for us and obviously really nice when you work your butt off and you're just kind of like in your own world Mm. beavering away and someone's like hey what you're doing is really good <laughs> and you get Absolutely. some like press coverage and and people are actually you know a bit more interested than just us talking about it <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, it's actually pretty us. incredible and obviously you're out in Mozambique at the moment and have been for some time so are there any challenges of living out there where you are well I can tell you one that I'm facing today <laughs> um, <laughs> My laptop cable broke um, and I have an Apple Mac and I can't get one, a replacement cable in the entire country. Um, So I've looked all over this province and I have like friends that have also have friends who have friends and everyone's kind of been looking. Oh no. Um, Not available in the province. So then I had a friend that was like, oh, yeah, uh, we'll get one in Maputo and we'll get it sent up on the bus because there's no postal service here. Um, So we'll get it sent up on the bus and you can collect it from the bus. And then (laughs) they've had their friends looking all over Maputo, which is like eight hours south of us and it's the major city. They can't find one anywhere in Maputo. So now they're having to look in South Africa and then the borders are shut at the moment. So... (laughs) Oh no, this is a nightmare. That. <laughs> so that's a very uh, 
very big problem that we face. I think like the lack of postal system can sometimes be really annoying when we run out of resources. Um, mm. And we always kind of joke that um, our favorite phrase is make a plan because things will break and you literally cannot get replacements for them. Mm. So you yeah. end up having to make a plan. Um, and uh, <laughs> like one of one time the generator broke and the key broke uh, as well and it was it was a South African branded generator so we couldn't get a replacement so my friend made a key <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah so you, you become very resourceful with things that potentially wouldn't be useful anywhere else in the world but mm. <laughs> um, uh, are useful <laughs> and it's obvious that your research never stops and with all of the community projects like the swimming program and everything else you've got going on do you have time just to head out to the ocean to have some fun and, and relax uh yeah so i do spend a lot of time either in the pool teaching swimming to the local kids or in the sea which is obviously um slightly more preferable not that i don't love um <laughs> teaching kids but they're, <laughs> they're yeah. a bundle of fun as all children are when they're like four years old um so uh yeah i do spend a lot of time recently i've been spending a lot of time um stand up paddle boarding um oh, cool. because uh we got sponsored some boards by red paddle and um we can't launch any like motorized vehicles at the moment so we've been supping and free diving and yeah i'm really excited for whale season last year some friends had some pretty insane encounters on their stand up paddle boards with like a oh. a whale underneath them coming up um with a pectoral fin like they were the <gasps> whale was on its belly and it and it um turned its belly and put a pectoral fin on either side of the oh paddle board oh my gosh that's incredible um, so i'm pretty excited for the photos from that cuz i wow. am an underwater <laughs> photographer so i love getting as many shots as possible um, we've had yeah. some beautiful conditions recently with um, some free diving, so I'm excited for those as well. And then, yeah, I mean, we have residential whale sharks, so whale sharks are pretty cool. They're very chill, yeah. so like you just jump yeah. in the water and swim with it, and it won't change oh, its pace wow. and it won't change its behaviour yeah. as long as you don't disturb yeah. it. So you can spend as long as you want with them. So whale sharks are pretty awesome. Mantas we have encounters with, had some pretty cool like barrel feeding and things like that. So mantas are usually diving, whale sharks are yeah. usually snorkeling, and then uh, whales kind of both um, sometimes they'll yeah. visit on a, on a dive and sometimes they'll visit on a snorkel. But where like a couple of years uh, last year, I think it was, we were on Pandani Express, which is one of the sites here, dive sites here. Um, but I looked to my left and a baby humpback whale was just chilling. <laughs> um, wow. Yeah. Okay, that's about amazing. 10 metres away um and oh. that was really incredible i think for me like i i sharks are the reason that i went into marine biology but whales i find so enchanting because they're just so big and clever and like they have such <laughs> a diverse range of behavior as well that it makes them like so interesting to be near oh wow i'm completely obsessed with humpback whales and whales in general actually so yeah that's just astonishing wow and obviously, you're a not-for-profit and rely quite heavily on donations and public support. So how is the best way that we can support you and get involved and follow your work? Um, so there's a few different ways. There's obviously donations. So we're a UK-registered charity. So 
um, donating anything is obviously much needed and much appreciated. Then we have a few campaigns that people can get involved with online. So if they can't physically, we have our volunteering where you can come physically out here and, and get involved in the research we do and receive training and all of that kind of stuff. We have those programs for pretty much anyone. Um, so we've basically expanded our partnerships in the last couple of years. Um, um, so we have a five week program that is generally for people who are studying a related subject at university. And then we have our conservation adventure program, which is three weeks and that's for general public. So anyone over the age of 18 or 18 or over. So that's popular with like people who are in a career change, um, can get a sabbatical off work, uh, considering moving into marine biology as a career, yeah. gap year, all of that kind of stuff. Then we have our, uh, photography program so we've partnered with photographers without borders which is a ngo canadian ngo that's amazing we have a ridiculously qualified photographer um, run a workshop people come out who want to learn how to tell stories using um photography so they have oh. yeah like usually national geographic or you know photographer come out mm. here um then we have our swimming program which is basically um we're partnered with a charity called swim taika and during August, the it's winter in Mozambique, so there's winter school holidays, and the kids have um, two weeks off school, so we run intense wow. swimming lessons for that two weeks. Okay. Um, so sometimes we bring some more swimming instructors so that we can teach more children in that two weeks. And then we also have school trips that come out here and host um, basically any kind of group travel. So if anyone has like a dive school or, you know, um, a group of people that want to come out then we we all develop programs with them too so that's yeah basically anyone can get involved with our work in Mozambique so we'll yeah. run out of our base and then we also have for people that can't get involved like don't have the finances don't have the resources to come out here um to Mozambique and obviously right now yeah. with everyone on lockdown no one can yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So we have our online campaigns that um, people can get involved with. So we have um, cool. a Q&A series that runs on our Instagram where we have guests on. Um, so we've had like Blue Planet cinematographers and award-winning photographers and um, TV presenters and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that's an interactive session. So you can ask questions and all the rest of it live. Um, all of that information is on our website as well so people can visit our website and fill in forms and stuff if they want to like get involved yeah. and come out here they can um, submit an inquiry on our website and then we'll send them more info oh well of course all of your links will be put on our instagram page so please go check that out if you want to get involved and oh well fran thanks so much for your time today and coming on the podcast it's amazing to hear how love the oceans was set up um, and how it's grown into this really massive project hugely successful so um, yeah thanks so much for for that insight no worries thanks for having me on and um, awesome you've listened to this wildlife podcast Please do check us out on Instagram and Facebook by searching for This Wildlife Podcast. You'll find loads of photos and links to our incredible guests. And watch out for some awesome competitions coming up soon. Now, of course, our main priority is to share the conservation stories that must be told. And we need your help to grow the wildlife family and spread the word. 
So please do subscribe to the podcast. And if you're listening on Apple, we'd love it if you could leave us a review. Or if you're listening on another platform such as Spotify, how about you share us with a friend? So from everyone at This Wildlife Podcast, thank you so much for your support. And remember, we're here to bring the wild to you.